Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. And I'm Eloise Ross. And today we'll be discussing Ken Loach's I, Daniel Blake, Emil Corton Wilson's Ruin. We'll com- um, we might compare notes on Denis Villeneuve's arrival if we've got time, and our picks from this month's offering at Mubi. But first, Ang Lee's epic Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. Billy, what if you don't go? And I will be waiting for you. What do we owe the pleasure of your enlistment, Private Lynn? I'm sorry, excuse for a warrior I'm turning out to be. Make it about something bigger than yourself. These men are fighters. Let your training guide you. Miss it? It's going down. What? Let's go! Sun's been hit! Damn it, Lynn! Come on! It is sort of weird being honored for the worst day of your life. Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, the new film from Oscar Bater extraordinaire Ang Lee, comes with a lot of baggage. Most notably, Lee shot his film in super, super high resolution. 4K resolution in 3D and with 120 frames per second. Most films are filmed and screened in 24 frames per second. Not that any of this matters to an Australian audience. In the end, Sony Pictures only installed the necessary screening equipment in two American theatres. The rest of us are seeing this movie in a standard 24 frames per second format. Because of these screening limitations, the marketing for this film has had to awkwardly sell a technical gimmick that audiences can't even experience, while Elle's also telling us that the story is what really matters. So, Andy, was Billy Lynn's story, which focuses on an American-Iraq war veteran coming back to the country on a sort of victory tour, enough to sway you on Ang Lee's vision? Uh, no, no, it wasn't. Um, the story itself is actually quite interesting, and I imagine the book, the original from which it's adapted by Ben Fountain, is um, a really, really g- a good tale. I mean, it's got a lot of, a lo- it's got a lot to sell it. But the way that Ali and screenwriter Jean Christophe Castelli have put it together, it just doesn't. It kind of jars quite a bit. There is a lot to love about it. I think the acting, in a lot of cases, almost sells it, and in some scenes, it really, really does. There are some fantastic scenes in this film that um, would work uh, on any frame rate. But I think overall, it's just a very strange film that sits quite weirdly straddling the lines of being like an emotional drama, a war epic, a real-time, not quite thriller, but it's certainly like there's a lot of energy and tension to it mm-hmm. that um, that comes from its real-time telling, which works in some cases. Um, I mean, it gives you a sort of sense of propulsion to the narrative. In other cases... The hurried uh, love story, Chris Tucker's Hollywood hustler who's trying to sell a movie deal based on their story of the story of the Bravo Company, which is the name of the um, small group of army men who are the, the centre of the story. Um, that it kind of jars. It feels it, um, it doesn't really have the integrity that I think a lot of the other film has, and what Ang Lee is striving for. I mean, a lot of his other films tend to balance the, that emotional quality really, really well. I mean, Brokeback Mountain. Um, even parts of Life of Pi were, you know, a kind of enthrall to the emotional mm. story and the characters. The like he obviously has great affection for the characters he he um, documents. But I think in this case, it didn't quite hold together for me. How about you? Well, yeah, it, it feels like there's this funny spectre of this whole other film sort of haunting this movie because it's been we're not seeing it in this super super high resolution format the way that Ang Lee shot it, but still all of the creative choices they've made are for this format. So we're seeing it in a format that it's not been created for in a weird way. So, so look, there are lots of, this is what I mean by this, there are lots of like head on shots of people talking at the camera, lots of shots of Billy Lynn and then from his perspective, it's almost as, uh, as if it's kind of like the same visual language. I'd imagine like virtual reality films yes. would employ. Yeah. It's sort of very steady. There's no, jarring cut well there are but there are some jarring cuts actually that are quite interesting but yeah a lot of it's sort of characters talking to you so the acting sort of choreographed around around the camera there's a sort of there's a real verisimilitude you've got characters coming on screen saying bits of dialogue to you and then sort of walking off and continuing their conversations you know as if you're in this the bulk of the film takes place in this like NFL stadium down in Texas and you get a real sense that 
of this environment, this stadium environment of all the people sort of interacting around the film, doing their own sort of stuff. So even though we're not seeing it in the super, super high resolution format, we're still seeing the same editing and camera movements and the same acting. So it's very, I don't know, it's weird. Yeah, it's, so I it's, thought so too. Yeah, it's watching Steve Martin in particular, it felt like he was overacting a muted Texan tycoon, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. So it was, uh, yeah, he was very odd in this film. A lot of, like, front-on shots of him uh, talking about, you know, money and the stadium and all that kind of stuff, mm. which I found really interesting and a bit weird. Kristen Stewart crying towards the camera. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's really, it's bizarre, mm. I've got to say. I um, I couldn't make the screening, so I haven't seen this film, but do you think that, because there was a lot of, kind of as you said criticism when the film came out that you know maybe it was an interesting approach a, a great you know could have been really well executed and was a good story and good direction overall but the fact that it was shot at 120 frames per second made it just look awful and like basically mm. um unbearable yeah so there's that there's either that option or the you're watching something filmed in one format but like not in the not in the way that it was meant to be seen what do you think do you think that you're benefiting or that you're kind of losing something from that? I think you're, uh, yeah, I think we're losing something because I think the 120 frame rates per second thing for this film, as opposed to say the Hobbit where they, they didn't what they use, um, 48 frames. Mm. And that was weird. And this is like, what, three times that. I, I think it would be the disorienting effect would work really well because it's all about this guy who's experiencing PTSD. And I think it would be mm. a creative choice that Lee's made to tell the story of this war vet who's come to like the heart of Americana here, like this NFL game. You've got exploding, um, you know, music, very loud noise, stars and stripes, all, you know, all, I mean, even watching it in the rate we watched it at, it was, it felt quite excessive and full on. And I imagine seeing it in this super, super, super beefed up format would have made it completely nauseating and unbearable, almost unwatchable. But I think that might have been, I mean, that would have been probably what he was trying to get at, I would guess, mm. if I was being sympathetic to what Lee's trying to do here. So in that sense, I think we do miss, yeah, that side of things. What's yeah, I mean, I from the well, the critical consensus out of the one of the screenings which did have the one twenty frames per second at the New York Film Festival where it opened was that it was a fascinating failure, and everybody was very much on the defensive straight away. Vin Diesel was saying, "Well, you know, it is what it is," and they're making all these kind of you know general positive you know spins on this. Yeah, and I, I came away thinking something pretty similar. I mean, there is a there is a lot of creative decisions that were made for that. But it should be able to survive being, you know, dialed down to 24 frames per second. And that's when it comes back to the story, like you were saying before. And I just don't think it's, it's there. I mean, things are rushed. There are, I mean, I mean Ang Lee would have known that only two cities in the whole world could play this Well, yeah, this although film. there's been a bit of a argy-bargy, I think, between Lee and Sony Pictures over, I think, I've, yeah, I think there's been a lot of, behind the scenes right. drama. I mean, it would be very is, expensive yeah. to install this equipment, yeah. presumably. But see, yeah, exactly. Uh, and um, I don't think Sony Pictures wanted to, but it's interesting to contrast it with The Hobbit because The Hobbit, you had to see in specially designed cinemas as well. Right. And mm. I think it, there were a lot more than yeah, just um, two in America. I saw it in 48 frames yeah. per second and that was it was really weird. I mean, it took take yeah. you for like half an hour to get used to it. But at the same time, I was asking myself, like, why? Like, yeah, why? And in this case, I feel like the arguments have been made for faster frames per second by Doug Trumbull and um, James Cameron and Peter Jackson is that for action scenes, you don't have the blurring. So in the case of this, there are, you know, people are firing machine guns and casings are coming out. And for the first time, it, you can see the casings. You, they're not blurring. Interesting. But they're, you know, well, in, apparently in 120 frames per second. Okay. This is what the New York Times was saying and other reviewers have said. Right. This sort of stuff is where it really So works. there is merit to it. Yeah, there is some merit, but there's also very, very few action scenes in this film. And so, like Candace was saying, it's more about, you know, the people looking at you and talking to you. And I don't see how that is improved by seeing, you know, a dermatological impression of Steve Martin's face. It's not <laughs> going to sell you on that on that film anymore. Unless the acting no, itself... Steve. Yeah, I mean, it's great. But he's, in this film, he's kind of... It's very odd. But I see, mm. I think it would... If you think of this in terms of a film about a guy who's suffered this huge, awful experience at the Iraq war and he's come back and everything's a bit off kilter. And I think it would definitely put you in the same sort of frame of mind if you were seeing it yeah. in that format. Yeah. Particularly, I was thinking there's this sort of really disorienting 
Billy Lynn's titular halftime walk when it does come. Uh, <laughs> so the Marines, the, the army vets, I should say, they sort of play a central role in like the halftime show at this football game, and which is anchored by Destiny's Child. So it's like a fake 2004 version of Destiny's Child. It's quite, it was, it was almost <laughs> hilarious actually watching them angrily like, obscure that because obviously it's not the real Destiny's Child so you only see them from behind it was yeah it's quite interesting but it was done it was filmed quite well it was I don't know it was funny it was funny though it, it's, it's, this whole film very weird but anyway um, it's such a weird sort of explosive disorienting um, sequence I thought it was filmed really really well because it was from Billy Lynn's perspective uh, like you're just one guy in the middle of this huge spectacle in the middle of a football ground. Um, I really liked that approach and I thought it sort of totally worked there. And I think that was like the highlight of the film for yeah, me. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was the key point of the whole film. That's where it really, really came together, where you had that the juxtaposition of the the battle scene in which um, you know there's casualties in Iraq and the, you know Billy Lynn is being triggered by the fireworks exploding around him and that sort of stuff. And that sort of cross-cutting was really, really worked. That gave me an impression that you know Lee is still you know a, a really really powerful director when he wants to be when yep. he gets given good material and I think Joe Alwyn's performance as Billy Lynn is one of the big big take takeaways from this I mean I think we will see a lot more of him he's it was, he was spectacular really I mean he's in pretty much every single scene he's there's a lot of shots of his face you know close up him expressing you know, minutiae of emotion mm. it was yeah he would really really he was fantastic and mm. it's unusual to see Christian Stewart not be the star of a you know to take you know to take be be one of the stars of a film in which he's in but she was her scenes I thought with him were the with the real emotional core as well she yeah. plays his sister and she had a car accident which kind of triggered his him deciding to go to Iraq which set the whole thing in motion in a way and that is when they come when they have those conversations I think that's that really that's really strong yeah no Stuart was great uh, as always she's um, capping off her dream run in 2016 at <laughs> and I, I've just got to give a shout out to Garrett Headland who's an actor who I love and I'm very happy to see him doing things again because he's been on hiatus for a few years, I haven't really seen him in anything, so it's great to see him again. Yeah, he was beautiful cheekbones. Mm. Yeah, so look, I think it's a really weird. I don't know. What did you think about the ideology of the film? What's he trying to say here? Well, it's interesting because yeah. he, he basically talks about the crossover between commercialization and the idea of patriotism, and so I feel like the ideology is it's kind of having it both ways. It's basically trying to stay yeah. honest to his emotional journey, which you know is where he's forced to take or he feels compelled <clears throat> to take duty. Being a member of the army, you don't really get to have. Um, you know, much say so there's a lot of yes sirs and you know this idea of the patriarchy is very much in effect so I think just by talking about his emotional journey it really kind of would play to patriotic Texans who support the war as well as you know people like us <laughs> maybe I feel like that's one of questioning. the um, you know just things that comes along with making a studio film is that you have to and this, you see this in a lot of Ang Lee films and you know not exclusive to him but that you know someone will try and, and have a message in their film and that becomes obscured somehow I, I agree I think it is a mixed yeah it does try to have it both ways I think key to this is it's changed something from the book which I, I don't want to talk about for spoilers but I think that change shows you yeah, which side ultimately the film lands on. But having said all of that, I still thought this was a really interesting, weird, weird movie. And I would recommend people go and see it because there's a lot mm -hmm. to think about and experience in this weird way of seeing a film that's shot from one format, screened in another. You can sort of see the creative choices that have been made for this format that you're not watching it in. So it's a quite a unique uh, experience at the cinema. Yeah, I would second that. And I'd also go for the performances as well. I think there's, yeah, a, totally. there's, there's enough. Joe Alwyn, I think, is incredible. Yeah, um, I'm keen. So from the million-dollar spectacle of a Super Bowl halftime show to the Newcastle <laughs> doll queue, I, Daniel Blake. Good morning, Mr Blake. I'm appointed to carry out assessments for employment and support allowance. Can you walk more than 50 metres? Yes. Can you raise either arm as if to put something in your top pocket? Yes. Can I ask you a question? Are you medically qualified? I've had a major heart attack. I've been told by my doctor that I'm not supposed to go back to work yet. I'm afraid you must continue to look for work or your benefit payments will be frozen. There must be some mistake. If you've been deemed fit for work, your only option is job seekers allowance. Well, I want to appeal. You have to apply online, sir. I was a carpenter. I've never been anywhere near a computer. So you need to run the mouse up the screen. So the winner of the Palm Door at Cannes this year, somewhat controversially maybe, over Marin Ard's excellent Tony Erdman, 
I, Daniel Blake, is a powerful indictment of a broken social services system in England um, and of the widespread failure of government to protect the citizens that it promises to. The film follows Daniel Blake, played by Dave Johns, a 59-year-old carpenter who has a heart, who has had a heart attack at the opening of the film and been deemed unfit for work. Um, and the film follows his attempts to undertake the process of getting an employment and support allowance. So it kind of starts off in this really, in this way that presents Daniel Blake's experiences frustrating with a gentle kind of humorous moments that highlight the nonsensical demands of the public service, mm. but it quickly turns somber as the reality of the system's neglect claims its victims. Daniel is struggling after the death of his wife and he befriends a single mother, Katie, played by Hayley Squires, after futilely defending her to the gallant defenders of welfare bureaucracy. Her struggle is heartbreaking and their stories and performances cement this as an important and relatable and terrifying film. So, Anders, you saw it this afternoon. How are you feeling now? Quite wiped out in a way it's i loved this film i've uh, it's got a few issues i think but overall i love this film and i think it's a very important one as well the first thing to point out which is what you mentioned is that although this might be and it is a fairly bleak portrait of the current state of the british welfare system uh loach does manage to texture this darkness with some sort of gallows humor and moments of levity and particularly moments of compassion so i really yeah and i think um, that's key that's a key part of dave john's performance he really gets yes that. Yeah. yeah definitely yeah. uh yeah yeah because he's yeah he yeah he gets the humor in there as well well he's a stand-up comedian this is his first dramatic role oh there john's you go. Oh. oh cool Goodness, yeah. yeah. You can see that, but I can't, yeah. can't picture him. Anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, in particular, I think uh, I loved there's this one character who works at the benefits office. Uh, I think it might be, her name might be Louise, I can't remember. Um, but she's this very sort of compassionate character. Anne. 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 Yes, Anne. Yeah. Uh, she's very compassionate and she's trying her absolute best to help this guy, Daniel, navigate this nightmare of a bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Um and it's it's got it's it's really yeah it's really quite emotionally powerful watching her sort of you know fail really uh to work within this you know to to act as a compassionate actor within this uh god awful system and yeah as you say at first it's funny listening to him you know vent his frustrations on hold to the benefits office for hours at a time listening to the same holder music over and over again um but it does get sort of progressively sadder and progressively infuriating really and it really the ending uh, yeah it's sort of all it all it's just sort of yeah culminates i think really quite strongly um that was my initial reaction anyway yeah what do you think andy um i absolutely loved it i thought it was uh yeah it wasn't flawless but i think there is enough there that i could see what the palm door judges were thinking when they gave it um you know the, the, the highest award they could and his second award after the win that shakes the barley um, which is an equally powerful film, I think. I thought I think this is re- what it also is fascinating about this film is the conversations it's triggered in the UK because it is so powerful and so many people have seen aspects of their lives in it. And you know, I think in Australia you can easily you, you've got the same hold music for the, for the love of God. Oh, I can <laughs> totally. Oh, yeah, yeah. So much. <laughs> I've had you know Centrelink people say the same stuff to me, and I think you know mm. I'm not the only one, and I've, I'm sure there's people who've had far worse stuff mm. said to them and far more infuriating experiences. So you can definitely see it's widespread. Yeah, so when Daily columnist Toby Young said that he didn't think it rang true, mm. this, like, inspired this whole firestorm on social media about, you know, well, obviously, you know, a rich Daily Mail person who's never been on welfare is n- not going to see any aspects of their life in this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, I just I- can't believe that comment. I'm just, I still cannot believe that you would go and see a movie and not understand that it came from somewhere. I mean, or that how, how else. willfully naive do you have yeah. to be? Yeah. Like, honestly... It's infuriating. Well, yeah, yeah. And that's, in a way, I think that's kind of helped the film a lot as well because yeah. it has been, you know, the name of it has been projected against the walls of the Houses of Parliament in London. There's been oh, huge right. discussions yeah. about it. He's, he's one of his most successful films ever. And it's basically telling the same story he told in 1966 with Cathy Come Home, which is his first directorial um, effort that he made. Mm. So it's wonderful to see, like, a director just take every single cinematic tool they have and throw it in service of this story. So it's not trying to be beautiful. It's not trying to become this, you know, internationally, speaking the international language of cinema through visual. Mm 
yeah. quality. Yep, yep, it's just yep. this is the story. This and that was that was both the strength, I think, and also the weaknesses because the story is made up of a bunch of smaller stories, which are all based on true accounts. That it feels like a lot of them are huge or into this thing. So there's like the scene after scene of there being a new pr- challenge or a new problem, which you know all of which have, you know are based on true stories. But at the same time, it feels like it doesn't quite feel like like as genuine as I think he would like it to feel. Like Hayley Squires, I think her story almost overshadows Daniel Blake's in a way because she... I mean, she has children and so in that sense her story would overshadow his because she is, you know, he is at the end of his life and he's lost his wife already and she is, you know, not even 30, I think, in the Mm. the Mm. film. Yeah. Um, I mentioned today that she's younger than us. (laughs) So, you know, that's kind of, you know, was surprising to me to figure out that, you know, she's clearly struggling and she is, has been deserted and, and deserted by her, the people who love her and also by, you know, the people who are meant to protect her. And so you, it would make sense that her story kind of becomes the main one. And also Ken Loach very much says that kind of channels the, the sympathy for Katie through Dan as well. So it's mm, not only yeah. us as spectators who are yeah. concerned for her, but it's he is. but it's him as yeah. well. Like how many representations do we get of the working class in cinema today? It's, it's yeah. quite a rare it's a thing, you know, to to and I think it's yeah, I think so I think this is powerful. I mean maybe this is what I, I was just thinking, you know, about this guy who and I wasn't aware of this, I can't remember what his name is, but this guy who said it was like it didn't mean true that there was no one like this in yeah, in young. real life. Yeah. You know, I'm like, what does he need? Does he need like like just totally devastating poverty like on the streets no because even that can be argued away Mark Steele wrote a whole piece in response about this in The Guardian saying you know if somebody like him walks past a homeless person he'll say oh he's probably the Earl of Northumbria and he's probably got a castle there's all these these excuses that you can have to you know to prevent yourself from seeing the truth yeah well I mean what I was going to say is that I'm like yeah totally well that's awful and gross and disgusting and I can't handle it but that if they need the absolute worst I'm like this is is just about the absolute worst oh yeah i mean yeah for sure even you know it's they're not living on the street but you know dan says multiple times if this doesn't come through i'm going to be living on the street yeah and i think too you know now at the current uh, time that we in which we live you know post brexit post donald trump's shock win all this kind of stuff like this film, I think, has a newfound urgency because it's really speaking to the impact of decades of liberal policies. You know, the, the things that people are now reacting very strongly against. This will tell you why. This film will explain to you, I think, why people, why that sort of consensus is coming to an end. I just love this moment of defiance he has where, uh, and this is where the title of the film comes from, he like spray paints on the side, you know, he's had enough of the being given the runaround by uh, the benefits office and he walks around to the side of the building and he writes, uh, he graffitis onto the wall, I, comma, Daniel Blake, the name of the film. You have, I hate your hold music and all this, and all this <laughs> yeah, other stuff. Yeah. He just like lets it all out and it's amazing graffiti scroll and these bystanders watch him do it all and then they like give him this like huge round of applause and it's like, it's amazing. It's this amazing moment of defiance of saying, yes, I'm a human being. Yeah, yeah. And that was, that was incredible. It's such, I mean, it's almost a, a, a moment of relief for us in the audience, but the, it's not, you know, as you say, it kind of indicates where the title comes from, but it's not as though it's giving anything away about his personality. I mean, something I kind of scribbled down when I was watching it in his, in the first scene where he's on the phone to this woman and we, before, you know, we see an image, there's just, you know, several minutes of this conversation with this, this woman on the, on the other end of the line. Um, and he's having a back and forth and she's not listening to him, you know, and I think, you know, that's a very relatable experience. But he says, can we get some perspective in here? And it's so, I don't know, it's so simple, but it was just such a little thing for him to say. And and from that moment, you're like, well, he's not someone who's just going to sit down and take this. Yeah, exactly. Um, Like, he's going to express his discontent. And you do get, you get kind of recurrences of that emotion throughout the film. 
which mm. is really great. Yeah, I'm surprised none of us have talk, talk, spoken about the most powerful scene in the film yet as well, which I noticed um, in today. In the food bank. The food bank scene, which is totally mm. spoiled in Cinema Nova's ad for this film, by the way. Oh, <laughs> which I feel like, And it's like the number one thing people talk about is what Toby Young spoke about. He said that was the only scene he thought had any weight in it. You know, the rest of it was a bunch oh, of... Oh, it's devastating. It's, it's so phenomenal. unexpected like, and you can't see it happening at all. And it's it just basically like there were when I saw it there were everyone in the cinema was crying yeah, like yeah, that yeah. was and I'm a huge crier in movies but that was the first moment in the film at which I cried and I cried later on but you know that was it that was the moment and I just I mean Haley Squires is incredible throughout the whole film I think but particularly in that in that scene yeah and the mm. way the the camera kind of stays back from her i mean the camera the whole time kind of occasionally gets in close up but in general just basically stays at this you know neutral distance it's, yeah there's no you know it doesn't really comment at all mm. um it just observes yeah i mean he's very much like that did you cry in this film Anders? absolutely a- yeah, oh, yeah 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 and mm. i'm uh <laughs> I'm becoming more of a cry, but yeah, yeah, it was yeah. Our audience really broke down. I think about halfway through, and you could just feel so. And I, you know, that's the power of Loach's style of filmmaking. I think, like his and I performances, mean, and uh, yeah, the yeah. absolutely, absolutely, and yeah, you know, something that might be a bit dramatically on the nose or like didactic or whatever. But I don't think that's a problem at all in the context of the film. Mm. I didn't find it didactic. I thought a few moments, you know, were a little bit strained and a little bit convenient, but I didn't think it was... I would not use the word didactic. I would just think that this is totally necessary. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. One of the bleaker things I thought about when I was leaving this, uh, amidst a bunch of other viewers who were sniffling to a certain degrees, was how there's nobody I can think of who, under the age... I mean, he's like 18 nearly now, I think. I mean, this is meant to be his last film. Is there anybody replacing him in this sort of fearless political way of making films and telling stories and that's advocating. That's a good question. That's a very good question. Mm. Like for social justice and in inequality? Well, I I mean, I have no idea, but it's a very good question because I did what, while I was watching, I was thinking what amplified its power was the fact that it's comparatively uncommon, which is, I think, an indictment, not on Ken Loach, but on the film ecosystem that surrounds him because it is uncommon to see these people on screen, I mm, think. Yeah. Mm. Particularly in Australia. I mean, the diversity of the cast yeah. I thought was really interesting yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. something you Absolutely. don't really see in Australian films about Absolutely. the working class. And Absolutely. Uh, particularly to have a film like this that has these messages or, you know, tries to communicate these scenarios without having some golden ending that, you know, yes. like mm. fixes everything. Yes. And, and without being because, exploitative. Yeah, you know, you yeah, know what yeah. it's made me think? It's made me look, think back at, like, depictions of working class Australians in recent Australian cinema and I mm. thought so much of it is like exploitative it's using it for you know horror purposes or other you know for mm. other it's not like saying working class people deserve their own stories the way that Ken Loach is saying it with mm. this film no because most of the time you see working class people in Australian films they're dumb or they're portrayed as being stupid or they're portrayed as yeah, being or bad they're serial killers or whatever or that sort of way so, I mean yeah. when I can think of the cast well, that had a fairly diverse cast in, in a way I mean everyone was oh, yeah, well, white I, I, I think but, yeah. <laughs> but I'm trying to think of any Australian films about working class people that aren't yeah. this whitewashed vaguely patronising um, approach to the stories. Well, exactly. I mean, I think John Pilger's making very lefty political films. I don't know how whether his filmmaking chops measure up to Ken Loach's. Or, mm, no, I don't think or so. Or even how somebody would get funded in this day and age to make a film. Like well, that, I mean, that's the other question, isn't it? Yeah, the funding context around around these films. You know, it's uh, yeah, it's getting mm. harder. You know, when when funding bodies require you know more and more. Uh, <laughs> bureaucratic hoops to, <laughs> to be jumped through as yeah. we've seen from this film mm. uh, it doesn't necessarily lead to the best outcome so yeah no I think this is really powerful really worth watching and I'm very happy to see that uh, at my screening anyway which was 12.30 on a Monday afternoon packed cinema totally mm. packed yeah yeah even mine yesterday Sunday was was very full yeah cool. very yeah. full yeah, it's um. I think it's galvanising militancy is going to not please everybody. I think some people are going to find it a bit too much or a bit like, oh, why do I need to go to the movies to see a story about working class people suffering? 
but I think there is so much because here. Because you do. Yeah, you do. Well, you if do. If you're saying that, you clearly have no idea of what the suffering is. Well, it's just the fact that people might not want to go to a film that doesn't offer escapism, like mm. in a Fantastic Beasts mind. Mm, or, mm, mm. or even, even I've, I mean, you can't... Yeah, I mean, that's not just... Yeah, not everyone wants to see that kind of stuff in the movies. So. Mm. But I think there is enough cinematic craft here for people to go, wow, okay, this is really powerful, this is really smart, and I'm glad I went and saw this. Mm. Yeah, no, it's one of my... Well, well, I'm very fresh off it, but one of my favourites I've seen this year, definitely. Mm. Yeah, so plus, powerful. And plus, I feel like in, with the geopolitical developments of, since our last mm, episode, mm. I think this, and along with a film like Arrival as well, is another film that you can't help but see in light of the new state of the world now. But that's not to say... It is a pretty despairing film. But it is kind of hilarious. But it's a great... I mean, the, it's, it, yeah, it's at like the same time, it's fun. In the pre-credit sequence alone, I think I laughed four or five times. Yeah, 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 yeah. Dan is a great character. The thing is, Loach has, like, such compassion for these characters, and there are compassionate characters in the film, and I think that really helps with the overall project. So it's not... I mean, it's just... Yeah, it is quite a bleak film, but also I totally related to these characters, mm, yeah, which I think yeah, helped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Yeah, good one. Definitely one to see. Definitely. So, from a bleak and powerful drama about poverty and survival in England to an impressionistic film about poverty in Cambodia, Emil Corden Wilson's Ruin is a visually striking, elegaic film about the plight of two people, Firun, played by Raoul Simoni, and Savannah, Sang Milan, living in poverty in Phnom Penh in Cambodia. Um, after the success of Hail, director Emil Corden Wilson visited Cambodia and set about making Ruin, inspired by stories that he heard and people he met, and the abilities of his local contacts to gain access to previously unfilmed locations. So Corden Wilson has uh, constructed a free-flowing narrative that is part road movie, part documentary about a young couple living on the streets, and also entirely unlike anything else that has come out of Southeast Asia. Apparently this is the first ever Khmer film to screen at the Venice Film Festival where it won the Horizon Award. Anders, what did you make of Emil Corden Wilson's Ruin? Well, look, I, I think I'm sympathetic to his project here, but I'm, I, I didn't really grab me the way I've heard it's grabbed other people. The first thing I want to say is it's a stunningly shot piece of film art. Like, it looks beautiful. And I think the cinematography is, like, it, it is truly exceptional. Uh, so there's this, this beautiful sort of stuff with, like, the city lights, slow motion shots of his main characters moving, you know, with water droplets in the air, all this kind of stuff, I think. I thought that was completely stunning. But then there's some sort of less stunning for me stuff as well. Uh, I really... I sort of grew to hate the handheld camera work that would follow the characters when they were running. Um, and there was a lot of running in this film. And you couldn't really tell what was going on. It's sort of like the shaky backs of these characters blurring streetscapes. It sort of gave me a bit of a headache. Oh, sorry to sound like David Stratton here for a moment. <laughs> so on the one hand, you have this sort of frenzied rushing around stuff. And then on the other hand, you have these really slowed down moments of quite beauty of the protagonist, you know, dancing um, or walking in slow motion. And I think that sort of juxtaposition, it didn't really work for me and it kind of threw me. And I've nodded off halfway through the film and I never fall asleep in movies. So I don't know if that's my fault or the film's fault. Okay. That's how I'm feeling about it. Yeah. What did you think, Eloise? I loved this (laughs) film. I felt very drawn into it and not immediately, you know. I mean, it's not the most... uh, inviting or comfortable form mm. of filmmaking this style of you know up close just kind of like um, dislocating you know with a lack of point of view shots kind of stuff like this is not the you know the easiest style to get into but eventually like uh, gradually I I got really into it I loved I loved the cinematography of them running i just loved it you know the camera behind them i really i felt very engaged with it the at the beginning you know when she runs away Mm. um this first moment you know savannah is is kind of 
you know, liberated, or she liberates herself, I should say. Yes. Um, yeah. um, she runs away and she, there's this moment where she kind of plunges her head back and there's this shot of like a bright crystallized lights in the street kind of as she feels freedom and that with this shot that kind of followed from after her running away, being really like, you know, out of focus. Um, and I thought that was incredible just uh, uh, to begin with, to kind of get you into the mindset of, of Savannah, this woman who, who needs her freedom and who really can kind of feel her freedom in a way that is not complete, you know, like she, she has this space around her, but she can't quite get to it because the lights, you know, are bright, but they're also, you know, kind of out of focus in the street. And so from that very moment you get, and I feel like that's what that, that camera work is doing is just saying that these people who are following have some kind of joy but they're also held back and restricted i thought that was followed through in a really sustained manner and i basically just loved the the whole thing like you know there were moments where they were walking in silence you know instead of running Uh, and i really loved that as well you know they were just you know being together these two characters there's this really beautiful moment as well where she savannah is trying to tune a radio you remember that yeah, um, yeah. And it we won't tune. She's kind of yeah. like trying to carry it around the whole room. And I'm gesturing now. You can't tell because you're not here. But anyway, like she's just holding it up in different places <laughs> around the room, you know, and it won't. I honestly can't remember that. Maybe you napped your <laughs> right. Yeah. But so she's trying, like, you know, they've gotten away to this refuge and the, um, in a room together. And she's trying to find, you know, some kind of semblance of the outside world. And she can't get it because the radio won't tune. I just feel like it's this beautiful moment that represents yeah. that she is trying to see more of the world, but she's being mm. held well, back. Well, thanks from for explaining it. that because I didn't understand that scene. I was like, please, can we just move on? Oh, I well, want to know what's going to happen next. Well, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that, but that's what I got from yeah. it. Mm. Is that she's trying to, um, and you see, did see this, and the screening that we were all at, um, Amel Corton Wilson was there and kind of did a QA afterwards. And some of the things that he said I found really, really interesting thinking about the whole film. But, you know, you just get this, and this radio won't work for her and you think you know given where the film goes in the end like what what does that mean for her the fact that she can't get this yeah this very simple device to work anyway so i thought that there was all of this really you know in addition to the story the story the love story the wider kind of resonance with with cambodia's um state of being um there was just a whole lot of really beautiful um filmmaking in this yeah there was and i think that's his biggest strength is that he's kind of using a cinematic language almost unlike any other australian filmmaker i can think of there's so many strong totally. striking images in this but i also felt that like though a lot of those images and the music the score for this film were felt like they were foisted on like there were seen beautiful stunning slow motion scenes of people emerging from water or boats moving into frame against waves or silhouettes against fireworks but they felt totally dissociated for me for the rest of the story so i felt like that maybe these were meant to be these like isolated instances of these people of these two characters who he clearly adores bonding or fi- feeling finding some sort of quiet place amidst this you know world where they would you know which is littered with with death and mm. poverty and abuse and horrific sexual violence and all sort of other stuff but um it just felt like there, there was, it was just not quite connected to, to a way um that these characters felt genuine so i felt like they would they would never explain these characters stuff just happened to them or they were in this powerless situation where they were the only things that, that they could respond to were almost like these childlike feelings of anger or affection or something. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, when we, Amiel, did the Q&A afterwards, he mentioned, uh, and he didn't explain beyond beyond mentioning it, but he mentioned Badlands, mm. um, you know, Terrence Malick's Badlands, not necessarily as inspiration, but just at least as a format for this film, you know, the kind of the lovers on the run, road movie type of format. And he said, and this is something interesting, because I never have, I don't, not never, but like I generally don't have a problem with this kind of, uh, plot style but you know he said it's very episodic that because it's a road movie you can just have these like you know number of moments yeah. that need to happen and you can have them happen you don't necessarily need to show you know how and why and where we got to these moments a thing happened um, and they, they keep running yeah, yeah, yeah. So they yeah. just something happens to them, or they do something, and then they move on, and yeah. and you know maybe that's where that whole you know disconnected kind of sense comes yeah. from. Yeah, okay, yeah. Because I was reminded of like of American Honey, which we watched, which is also mm-hmm. you know recently, mm-hmm. which is also a road movie, and also has these episodic instances and these gorgeous scenes. But in that case, I felt like it was much more connected to the characters, 
even though you know um, in that the film Star was kind of like subject to a lot of stuff and she was power, fairly powerless and was kind of borne along on this mm. um, this journey okay. um, because I feel like they make this, these um, creative decisions that are, uh, that risk applying a sort of western cinematic you know language onto these lives of these people who barely had a chance to ever tell their own story and are now kind of telling it through these visiting people I mean he did mention in the Q&A how he was very conscious of this and very mm, conscious yeah, of honouring yeah. yeah. their reality and you know doing it in their language and using their the and taking on well. their opinion as well you know I think that was a very important point yes. that, that yeah. Emil made yes. is that you know it was a very collaborative process and so I think this is fantastic and I think it's also probably why it was rewarded you know and as, as it should be it should have been at the Venice Film Festival but I also feel like particularly the music to me sounded like it was made by friends of his rather than people yeah, who were actually right. you know either of the culture or gave us a chance to get inside the minds of these people who are, you know are, are constantly reacting to stuff he, yeah. he repeated this interesting thing with the sound design uh where the sound so you'd have like this sort of moment of an actor in yeah emerging out of war in slow motion for example and like there'd be this sort of electronic music or something and it would all sort of reach a crescendo and then he'd cut to the next scene and cut the sound instantly and he did this several times not just one time and i think it was a combination of this the episodic structure the fact that we're sort of temporarily expanding into very slow motion sequences and then speeding up with these like real-time sequences i think all of that to swirling around together really didn't for me it felt a bit discombobulating mm, okay uh and i love that using that word but i <laughs> it did I, I think it's sort of yeah, it sort of served to alienate me in a, yeah, in a weird I way. I feel like if we were fluent... I respect what he was trying to do, but I totally respect it. Like, I think it's... Yeah. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah. but for me, yeah. He mentioned about wanting to use folklore from Khmer culture mm. or Cambodian culture. And so I feel like if we were fluent or we understood some of the stuff that he was doing that he was honouring in part of telling their story, then maybe it wouldn't be quite so discombobulating. But I also feel like in a, the case of a film like Uncle Boon Me, which like looked at the traditional beliefs of the people that Apichurung Wirathal... Apichapong, Wirathethical. Oh, thank you. Brilliant, yeah. Well, he managed to do this in a way that didn't feel quite so alienating. I mean, mm. it was a much more hermetic film. Mm. In this case, mm. it's not a road movie where you're moving through different you know, places. But that felt like, oh, my God, this is just really fascinating. What's going to happen next? Whereas in this case, I felt like, oh, I don't really understand why they're dancing around the fire in these particular ways. But then after, in the Q&A, he explains. I'm like, oh, okay, so this is great. So they're, mm. in a way, they're connecting back to their true roots and they're dispensing... That did feel like pressures. a very strange, you know, like it was very... That moment, that scene was very disconnected from, from anything else. Um, and then, of course, what happened afterwards? You know, they returned to their bed. Basically, there was there was no explanation of what happened before or after. Was was quite strange. I, I agree with you. Mm. So I feel like the people emerging from the scene, perhaps they're representing spirits, because there's a lot of use of mm. elemental stuff. There's fireworks. There's a lot of fire. There's a lot of water. I was thinking there's... about refugees in that point. Oh yeah. Where right. there's this shot of people emerging from the ocean, just walking up to a shore, and I was thinking, you know, is this meant to be some commentary on refugees? Mm. Uh, I, I don't know. Neither do I, but I feel like, are we recommending this? I think it's a I just really, wanna, really interesting film. I just want to mention one more thing. Um, so there's this moment where they're two, the, the two of them in a motel together, or I think, and they're in bed, and they there's this sequence where... At first, it's it's like imagery, and you don't, and their voiceover. So they're kind of kind of connected, but but a little bit disconnected. And there's a, a few minutes of him maybe giving some um, description, Furin giving some description of how he sees Savannah. And one of the most notable things that he says is she's like a ghost. And then he kind of goes on to describe her attribu attributes. And repeats, you know, the phrasing of she is she is she is and it's really rhythmical and and just kind of quite beautiful and then it, it she follows with the same kind of rhythm and she says mm. you know he is he does um and it's really it's a really beautiful moment where they're both kind of reflecting and you know you never really get because of the way that the movie is set up you don't really get any understanding of what these two people seen each other but very clearly they fall in love but you don't know why is it just circumstantial is it just because you know they were there or is it some kind of captor rescue type of thing or well, not captor but you know what i mean mm, yeah, yeah. um you know is that why but this scene was really beautiful and kind of gave some sort of insight and just in 
the the rhythm of it and then possibly some wider reasons reminded me of the opening scene of Hiroshima Monomore and several sequences throughout where the, the you know the two leads are saying to each other kind of having this parallel conversation with each other talking to each other but it's a little bit parallel in the same way that this scene played out you know saying you you do or you know you were there and no you weren't yes you were this kind of you know back and forth just talking about each other and loving each other but talking about trauma at the same time and I thought maybe comparing those two kind of scenes but also on a broader level the films and what they're dealing with which is the trauma of you know like a traumatized country and also a traumatized individual is really interesting Mm -hmm. yeah so at that point I was like oh hang on we get a voiceover now like we're bringing Mm. in this stylistic tool to be able to help you know tell the story Yeah, yeah yeah Yeah, interesting. Yeah, but, yeah, but yeah, you're right. That's re- that is really. Anyway, it was just something that I that I thought of, and it did resonate with me because I was like, these these are stories about countries that have been gutted, and mm. and yeah. you know, uh, people that have been terrorized. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so wait, uh, Ruin is playing uh, at Acme two more times, I think, on uh, December. Uh, not December, November 26th and December 2nd, December 3rd. And then it's going to Sydney. Then it's going to Sydney, yeah. So it's screening at a few places around the country. I think it's playing again at Acme uh, with some kind of musical accompaniment. Mm. Yeah, that would be really interesting. Mm, in December as well. Mm. So there are a couple of more chances to see it. And, and as Amil said at our Q&A, and as I think is you know necessary for these types of films, is that you really should see it in a cinema on a big yeah. screen just on a small screen it just doesn't have the same effect yeah yeah mm. you'd lose quite a bit so now we'll move on to our choices from the current selection at Mubi Australia um, and I believe that we have a special announcement to make regarding Mubi and <coughs> cultural capital we do but I'm going to do it after we've given our recommendations okay also I deleted it so I need to rewrite it oh no <laughs> that's a shame um, well in the meantime I'll talk about the film that I saw from the current slate of, at, on Mubi which was this amazingly weird film called Viva by the director Anna Biller Oh, of the Love Witch fame. Yeah, I'm it's a, on. It's on Ruby, and oh, I'm really cool. excited. Yeah, this was why I saw it because I heard nothing but rave ah, reviews ah, about the Love Witch from this yes, year's Melbourne International Film Festival. Wonderful film. Oh, you saw it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, great. It. Well, then you're going to love Viva because it's um, a feminist exploitation film, and its tagline yes. is "They were housewives seeking kicks in a world of swingers, orgies, booze, and sin that was the sexual revolution." <laughs> so, um, if somebody told you this was made in 1974, you'd probably believe them because it evokes this era with the most ridiculous attention to detail of any film. I've seen so pretty much every cliche you can imagine is um, is present. Annabella also stars in it. She wrote it. She edited it. She designed all the costumes. She made all the oh sets. She did a whole bunch of the paintings that appear throughout the film. Oh, she cool. wrote halfway through the movie. It turns into a musical, and she wrote the awesome. songs. Um, there's an animated sequence that she also made. It's just ri- ridiculous, <laughs> basically. So if you can imagine Valley of the Dolls crossed with Black Dynamite, then you're getting kind of close to what Viva has. And Viva has god-awful acting, um, has ludicrous situations, people who laugh hysterically at nothing at all, clunking product placement for fictional products. Um, And it's basically the sort of film you could watch with a whole bunch of friends and talk all the way through it and still find it really, really entertaining. So basically it tells the... um, I mean, Anna Biller in interviews has said that she was very influenced by Belle Jour, and so it does tell the story of a bored housewife inspired by a, a fairly liberated friend of hers that they should become models and then they become claw girls. So it has uh, it has like copious nudity, um, as was the fashion of the 70s. Um, a lot of incredibly cheesy music, quick zooms and in very implausible costume changes. But it also basically tells the story of um, Annabella's character, Viva, or her name begins as Barbie, but she, she takes on the name and persona of this character, Viva, partway through the film. And start, she basically espouses feminist philosophy, but then it kind of ridicules popular feminist philosophy of the time as being this ridiculously like useless tool that's in, in a very, very man's world. But as soon as she espouses anything like approximating modern-day feminism, it suddenly becomes this hugely problematic scene. Um, for a lot of the men who are basically portrayed as being these fairly dumb, stupid, boring characters. Uh, she said she based it on a lot of um, cartoons from Playboy magazines in the 1970s. So there are like scenes you know, where she's getting basically sexually assaulted by her boss at work who says, hey, I haven't finished promoting you yet, halfway through this, you know, <laughs> these scenes of assault. 
but um, it's done in this really, really kind of cheesy, funny way. So there are scenes like lines like, you know, we can't go, go out dressed on the streets looking like this. Sure we can. It's the 1970s. We're liberated women. <laughs> you know, when they go out on the streets, you know, with boobs or something. Um, but it is just a really, really entertaining film. It's not entirely, you know, successful. It does run a little long, I feel, at times. But it's just such a... Like, she obviously realised what she wanted to, you know, to realise and it is definitely worth seeing just for that alone. And if you're inspired by The Love Witch at all, I think it's definitely worth yeah, watching. Yeah, it was a wonderful film. Yeah, and cool. it only just got released yesterday, so I think you've still got like 27, 28 awesome. days to watch it. Yeah, I'm very excited. Uh, I'm very excited for Three Monkeys, streaming on movie, the 2008 film from Nuri Bilyeh Jalen. Uh, so this one, Best Director at 2008 Cannes Film Festival. I really like Jalen's film Winter Sleep, which came out a couple of years ago. Um, and was quite a divisive film. But I, yeah, I really dug it. It's a long three-hour sort of slow-burn chamber drama, uh, essentially, which mashed some Chekhov and Dostoyevsky together in Anatolia. Um, this film's a lot shorter. It runs at 110 minutes, and I want to slowly make my way through his backlog, and this is a great place to start. Eloise, yeah. what's your choice? Great, yeah. Well, I'm really excited about that film as well. Um, and I'm excited about the film that I think was announced today. So, Viva was announced yesterday, and this was today. Uh, Manuela Yankovic's War, directed by Diana Cardozo uh, in 2014. This is a Mexican film, um, Spanish language. And I... Um, so, it's sort of... I think it, it's meant to be about uh, this woman Manuela who works as a cook and lives with her grandmother um a Serbian immigrant to Mexico so they both live in Mexico and her grandmother was a Serbian immigrant who fled from World War II um so Manuela you know has a, a is is basically surrounded by her grandmother's memories and family memories and um wounds from the war and and histories um and basically i love films that are about war trauma because i just find them very interesting and they can bring up a lot of uh, both personal physical mental you know trauma I, they can unravel memories and i think that the way that films not all films you know but it's a very interesting premise a way for films to unravel memories that have led to or caused trauma can be very interesting and also very cathartic personally and also you know watching it occur on screen um so i'm i'm pretty pretty mm. pumped for this one <laughs> shall i just say yeah so manuela yankovic's war i think it's got another 30 days to go great okay That's yeah cool. um so as you might all know from listening to this segment uh, Mubi upload a new film each day and make it available on their streaming service for 30 days where you can watch them for 9.99 per month and thanks to a special promo that we have with Mubi, our listeners can try it for a month free by heading to Mubi.com slash cultural capital um, and following the links there to get a free month. So that's Mubi.com slash cultural capital. Um, we hope you head there and check out some of the films that they've got on, some great stuff at the moment. And, you know, get back to us if you want. Let us know what you think of our show or Mubi. Um, so, Andy, where can they do that? Well, you can email us at culturalcapitalpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at the Cult Cap Pod. We're also on Facebook at uh, Cultural Capital Podcast. Yeah, there's, so there's plenty of ways you can get in touch with us. And as people can get in touch with you on Twitter, can't they? They can. It's just my name, Anders Furs, F U R Z E. Get in touch with me on Twitter at Eloise Low Ross. And I'm Andy Ricky on Twitter. Um, thank you very much for listening to the end of episode 14 of Cultural Capital. See you next time. Cheers. Ciao.